What's up, poker players? Welcome back to the show that helps you level up your skills. I'm Mike Brady, and as usual, I'm joined by the pride of Scotland, poker pro Gary Blackwood. What's up, guys? My name is Gary, and today we're going to help you get better at c-betting in position in heads-up, single-raised pots. In other words, when you raise pre-flop, the big blind calls and they check to you on the flop. A quick note for some of the more experienced listeners, we plan to build up to more advanced topics in future episodes, but it's critical we get these fundamental topics covered first. Anyway, we're about to reveal how you should approach c-betting as the in-position player on five different types of flops. We'll start with the flops on which you should c-bet most often and work our way down to the flops that warrant a low c-bet frequency. Along the way, we'll talk about what c-bet size to use, as well as how your position and your opponent's tendencies should impact your c-bet strategy. For all of these examples, imagine that you raised preflop and only the player in the big blind called, 100 big blind stacks effective. Let's start with flops on which you should c-bet every single time or close to it. Gary, what are a few of those flops and what are their defining traits? So the first type of board that we're going to talk about here are paired boards, mainly the high paired boards. If we're talking about boards that we should be c-betting always or virtually always, these are the types of boards that we should be doing that with. So boards like ace-ace-three, king-king-queen, jack-jack-eight, ten-ten-deuce, they're just so unbelievably good for the preflop raiser. You want to be betting them virtually always, whether you're button, cutoff, MP, or under the gun. You can keep your strategy nice and simple and bet these boards very often for a small size. Some players use 25%, I use 33%, it's just down to personal preference here, but small and always is always right. There's another type of board that's very good for us, double Broadway boards like King-Queen-4, Ace-Jack-6, Queen-10, Deuce type boards. You kind of have a few different ways to play these types of boards, and again, it's all down to personal preference. You can choose to play a smaller bet size and bet them virtually always, or you can use a bigger bet size, say 75% pots, and bet them very frequently, but not quite always. There are advantages to both options. Option one keeps your strategy simple, allows you to bet always or close to always, and your opponents tend to make more mistakes versus a bet instead of versus a check. On the flip side, if you use the larger bet size, you get to put your opponent in uncomfortable spots because of your nut advantage, i.e. you have more nutted combos than your opponent and you kind of want to shove that down your opponent's throat on the flop and set up for doing that on future streets as well. So these double Broadway boards are really good for you, but there are a couple of different ways to play them. Yeah, and you can even make decisions like that, which of those strategies to choose based on your opponent's tendencies, right? Like if you think they're going to make mistakes versus the smaller size or versus the bigger size, you can definitely veer that way. Like, for example, if I was playing, you know, in position versus the big blind and the big blind was a very loose sort of calling station type player and I had a good hand on those double Broadway boards, I'd probably choose the bigger bet size scheme, right? And then do so with like a a relatively strong range because I know they're a calling station. I know they're going to put in too much money versus that big bet, and I want them to do that. On the other hand, if I'm playing against maybe a tight opponent, I could size down, use that more frequent strategy, and just expect them to do a lot of fit or folding on the flop. But at equilibrium, both strategies are very valid. You're absolutely right. And I think you can apply what you just said really well in live poker where you've got much better reads on your opponent. You know this guy's super loose, super passive. XYZ. So I think what you just said is absolutely right, specifically when it comes to live poker. Yeah, that's that's a good clarification because something that I think a lot of poker players do, and, and we've talked about this briefly on past episodes, is they make those adjustments based on quote unquote player tendencies, but their evidence for the player's tendencies is way too thin. 
So, you know, maybe they have like 30 hands on the guy in their poker tracker playing online and the guy hasn't folded to like one is he's folded to zero of three C bets. That doesn't mean the guy is loose, you know, like he could have just flopped a pair three times in a row. It's not that hard to do. So be careful to not make those deviations based on, you know, somewhat shoddy evidence. Make sure you have good evidence that, you know, the adjustment you're making is the right one. Okay, now let's go over high-frequency c-bet flops. Can you name a few flops that our listeners should be c-betting often, but certainly not 100% of the time? And again, what are the defining traits of these flops? Yeah, so we just spoke about those double Broadway boards that you can either bet always for the small size or bet quite often for the big size, but there are definitely a couple of others that fall into that category you've just asked about. And this is actually a big leak that people can plug immediately in their own games. A lot of people think that you should just bet your entire range for a small size, on a single Broadway flop like King 7 Deuce or Queen 6 5. And for that first flop I've just mentioned, King 7 Deuce, you absolutely can. But we actually want to do a decent amount of checking back on a board like Queen 6 5 or King 5 3. The reason for this is that King 7 Deuce is so disconnected, you're less likely to be met with any resistance in the form of a call or a raise from the big blinds. But on a board like Queen 6 5 or Jack 4 Deuce, it's quite a bit more connected. There are more hands that the big blind can continue with, and therefore we want to see that around 70% of the time on average. Now, that might not sound like a massive difference, but if you go from C-betting 100% of the time on Queen 6 5 to 70% of the time, it's actually a pretty big difference in your strategy. Another thing to consider, and this is really important, the low card effect of the other two cards. If you think about the big blinds defending range, they're going to call with a bunch of hands like 5-3 suited, 7-4 suited, 4-3 suited, etc. that we won't open. So they have way more hands that connect with that part of the board. And for that reason, we can't just see that everything on these types of boards always. One last type of board I want to talk about are the ace high boards. Again, complete myth that you just bet your entire range on a board like ace 8-5 or ace 6 deuce. These boards are really good for us, but we like to play some checkbacks on these boards more than you might think, again, betting around 70% or so on average. And it's really important we find these checks instead of just betting everything always. Can you talk a bit about what C-bet size you would use on some of the boards you just talked about? Yeah, so with anything, if you're betting very often, you tend to favor using a smaller bet size. So I'd be using 33% on virtually all the boards that we spoke about. The only slight difference that I would make, and this is not mandatory, this is completely optional, is that on Queen 6 Deuce, I'd be using a one-third C-bet size, but on a board like Queen 6 5, where the other two cards are a little more connected, I'd be using a 50% C-bet size. Like I said, that's completely optional. It doesn't increase your EV by very much at all. It's just down to personal preference. Yeah, and I suppose the reason behind using that slightly bigger size on the slightly more connected board is that more of the big blind's hands have some equity in the form of like a gut shot or a pair or whatever. So in general, you want your bet sizing to be a little bit bigger to challenge that part of their range essentially yeah so on a board like queen six deuce you're not betting always but you're betting really quite often whereas on a board like queen six five your frequency comes down a little bit and as we've just mentioned you know if you're betting really wide to use the one third size but when your frequencies come down as we'll talk about very soon you know when your frequencies come down a lot more your your c bet size goes up it's to do with the frequency that you're betting it goes down a little bit on queen six five and as a result we tend to favor that 50 percent size Like I say, though, it's completely optional. It doesn't make too much of a difference. It's just uh, whether or not you want to implement it. Yeah, and Gary just touched on a really fundamental thing. And I think a lot of listeners probably already know this, but might as well reiterate it for those who don't. When you're betting small, you tend to be betting frequently. When you're betting big, you tend to be betting somewhat infrequently. That's They kind of go together in that way. There are exceptions, monotone boards in particular. You want to bet kind of a medium amount, but for a small size. But those are kind of the exception, not the rule. For the most part, if you're betting small, you're betting frequently. If you're betting big, you're betting less frequently. 
Anyway, let's go ahead and move on down to the medium c-bet frequency flops, ones on which you should be c-betting around half the time. Gary, can you talk about some of those? So the boards that we've spoken about already are the boards that are really good for us. As we look at the medium frequency c-bet boards, we must understand that these boards are still better for us than the preflop caller, but not anywhere near as much as King King Deuce or Ace A3. We're now talking about boards like 984 Flush Draw, 863, 76 Deuce, and so on. The reason for our lower frequency c-bet averaging around about 55 to 60% of the time now is a combination of two factors we've already spoken about. One, the board is very connected. We're more likely to be met with resistance in the form of straight draws and flush draws. And two, there are more good hands that our opponent can have that we don't have, so the board becomes not as good for us as the other types of boards. So as your c-bet frequency goes down to about half the time, you said 55 to 60% on those 984, 863, 762 board, I would kind of classify those as connected boards, but there's not a straight possibility already, right? Like that's kind of how they, how, how you could classify them. How would you size your c-bets on those boards? So we now no longer use a smaller bet size on these types of boards. Instead, we use either 50% or bigger, say 75%. For example, when c-betting on the button on the boards we've just talked about, you want to use a 75% bet size. But when c-betting in MP or under the gun, for example, you actually prefer using a 50% bet size. It's really important that we aren't using a 33% bet size on 7.5 boost flush draw button versus big blind, for example. We clearly want to be using bigger bet sizes and be betting less often. Again, this is a leap that a lot of people can plug immediately. A lot of us watching this might be using the one-third c-bet size on these middling, lowish connected boards but the solver very clearly prefers using a 50 or a 75% bet size. A quick side note here, and this is really important. If you run any flop through a solver and give it a 33% bet size, and then you run the same board with only a 75% bet size, the solver will almost always bet way more often with the smaller bet size and way less often with the bigger bet size. So it is so important that if we are now starting to pick some spots where we want to use a larger bet size, We can't just bet everything always. We've got to reel in our frequency a little bit to reflect that we're using the bigger bet size now. So we can't just bet 75% all the time. If we want to start using that larger bet size, our frequency must come down. Good stuff. Now let's get into those flops that are just not good for us as the preflop raiser. What are some flops on which you should rarely see bet and why do they find themselves in this group? So hopefully now we're seeing a trend. If King Queen Deuce is really good for us and 853 is kind of average for us, then the boards that are really not good for us should be quite obvious. The really low connect the flops that our opponent contains some very strong hands on that we don't as a preflop aggressor. And we're going to break it down even further here because it's really important that we understand this. So let's use a board like 753, for example. And we'll use some very obvious hands that we want to talk about. 6-4 suited. We're going to open 6-4 suited on the button, but we're not going to open it under the gun. I have like 7-5 suited or 9-6 suited. Again, these hands are opens on the button, but never from any other position. And if we want to get really extreme, we can say I have like 7-6 suited or pocket threes are pure opens on the button, but low frequency opens from under the gun. What I'm saying here is that 7-5-3 isn't a great board for us on the button as the preflop aggressor, and we shouldn't be c-betting it that much at all. But we must understand that the tighter our range from earlier positions, the worse this board gets for us to the point that when we're MP or under the gun, we virtually never bet a board like this. And the way our range is constructed compared to the way the big blinds range is constructed is the reason. And once we understand that reason, things should hopefully start to make more sense. Yeah, so in other words, you get that 7-5-3 flop the big blind is often going to have two pair, straight, set, 
etc. They're going to have a bunch of those hands because they had a big blind invested and they called your small raise preflop, right? So they can have all those hands that just smash the flop. But if you raised under the gun, flop comes 7-5-3, you can't have 6-4 suited. Most people don't raise that hand from under the gun, right? You probably can't even have pocket threes every time. Maybe you're one of the people who plays those hands every time from under the gun, but maybe you're not. 7-5 suited, 5-3 suited, 7-3 suited. You're probably not playing those hands under the gun, right? But the big blind is calling your under the gun raise with them. So they have a very, very big advantage when it comes to the top end of the range. And as a result, you have to really tone down your betting frequency, because if you bet too often, they're going to be able to kind of stick it in your face with a lot of raising and make your life really, really difficult. Even if you have something like an overpair, it's going to be pretty difficult for you to play turns and rivers. Yeah, and just to give you guys some more examples, a word like 5-4-3 under the gun versus big blind, our default betting frequency here should actually be 0%. A board like 6-4-3 cutoff versus big blind is a board we only bet around 20% of the time. I just wanted to clarify so that you guys know exactly what we mean by rarely see bets. It's really important we understand that it's because betting frequently on these boards is a huge, albeit pretty common leak. Yeah, and on those boards, the ones that you should be c-betting at least some of the time, I think you said the 6-4-3 cutoff versus big blind, you're c-betting around 20% of the time. This bet size you should be using is around half pot on those boards, right? Yeah, and it's one of those exceptions to the rule that you mentioned earlier. Um, I initially said, you know, when you're betting very often, you use the small size, and when you're betting very rarely, you use the large size. For the most part in poker, that is true, but this is one of those exceptions. And the reason for that is that you don't want to be using a large bet size into a range that is pretty nutted when your range lacks those nutted combos. So the solver tends to size down a little bit so that when you do bet, you're using that smaller size to kind of save yourself from disaster, essentially. Yeah, there's a term people listening might have heard before, nut advantage. There's also range advantage. They're two different things. That's what Gary's talking about right now is nut advantage. The player with the nut advantage is kind of the person who gets to bet big, and you don't want to be betting big into the player with the nut advantage. Very counterproductive for you. So there's a couple more topics I want to cover before we wrap up, and the first is a multiple flop sizing scheme, kind of an advanced subtopic here. But Gary, are there any flops on which you actually want to use multiple sizes? In other words, you'll bet a certain size, say 75% pot, with certain hands, and then you'll have a separate range that bets 25% pot. That way you have to sort of balance two different ranges as well as your checking range. What do you think about that? That's not a strategy that I implement. Uh, And the reason for that is that when you have multiple sizes, you do increase your EV. However, the pot is at its smallest when you're on the flop. So the EV is really close. Um, Say, for example, you know, you've got, as mentioned, king, queen, deuce. You can bet one third, you can bet 75%. The EV of both those strategies is really close. However, if you split between sometimes betting one third and sometimes betting 75%, That will increase your EV, but because the pot is so small, it's so minimal, that increase in EV, that I'm of the opinion that learning a complicated strategy of, okay, what hands want to bet one third, what hands want to bet 75% for that tiny extra EV, just not worth it in my opinion. When you get to situations like the turn or the river, I think it's pretty important. But on the flop, the way I do it is I look at the board, I have one size, depending on what that board is, regardless of what my hand is, my range wants to play one size. And then I decide, does my hand want to bet or does my hand want to check? Yeah, and you touched on how using the multiple size scheme, it does increase your EV, but that's assuming you play perfectly, right? That's assuming you execute that multiple sizing scheme perfectly on the flop. 
then you've studied every possible turn in river, and you know how to keep your range balanced on every possible turn in river for m multiple sizes. Hard enough to do that for one size, right? You got to do it for two sizes, so you have to know how am I going to play turns after I bet 33%, and the turn is a 6, and what about when it's a 7? What about when it's an 8? Now, what about when I have set when I bet 75% pot, what am I going to do on a 6 turn, a 7? It's so many things you have to figure out. It's so much easier and more practical to simplify your strategy down to one size, and that's what you'll see, I want to say 95 plus percent of professional poker players do. You get to really high stakes, you'll start seeing guys who use multiple sizes on the flop, but even at high stakes, a lot of them just use one on most boards, from my understanding. So I think it's safe to say everyone listening to this podcast should lean towards that one sizing scheme without a very, very good reason to do so. Again, we talked about some exploitative reasons to do so earlier. You can always do that. If you know what your opponent is doing, you can always adjust. But in general, one sizing scheme is king. Yeah, not to fire any shots on the upswing podcast here, but I feel like people who use two or three different sizes on the flop, it's just kind of an excuse to bet big with a strong hand and small with a weak hand. Um, and they, you know, they don't really implement a balanced splitting strategy. As Mike has mentioned, it's very complicated. The EV difference is minimal. We're all about keeping your strategy nice and simple here. So like I did in the last episode, I want to quickly wrap this up with a note about tournaments. So pretty much all of the general concepts that we've talked about throughout this episode apply in tournaments as well. However, the specific examples when Gary's saying very specific percentages, very specific bet sizes, that stuff does not because the preflop ranges are different in tournaments. Since there's an ante in the pot, the big blind's going to be a little wider, you're going to be a little wider. That kind of changes everything a little bit. So in general, the boards we talked about that are high-frequency C-bet boards, they're high-frequency C-bet boards in tournaments as well. Low-frequency C-bet boards, they're low-frequency C-bet boards in tournaments as well. But just keep in mind when we said very specific frequencies, those were for 100 big blind cash games. Tournaments will be a little bit different. We've given you a solid overview of how to approach C-betting throughout this episode. But if you really want to print money with your CBET strategy, you've got to join the Upswing Lab and check out the many lessons that cover this topic extensively, made by very talented poker pros. Gary has a lesson in the lab called You've Checkraised the Flop, Now What? And the first few videos in that lesson get into the nitty-gritty of CBETing frequencies on a huge variety of flops. Yeah, and with those videos, you get some downloadable spreadsheets to study mass data analysis, noting optimal trends on different types of boards. And then we really break down how to decide which specific hands want to see bet and which specific hands want to check back. There's loads of other valuable lessons and resources in the lab as well. Plus, you get access to our members-only community where you can ask questions, get answers, and improve your skills with the lab coaches and fellow members. As a listener of this podcast, you can get $50 off when you sign up for the lab with the coupon code LEVELUP. That's one word. Head over to UpswingPoker.com and click the green button between Doug Polk and Ryan Fee to learn more about the lab and sign up. Thanks for listening. See you next time.